Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. I'm so glad that you're joining us today. Today I'm joined by Dr. Phil Plisky. Dr. Plisky and I are going to be discussing movement assessment and movement testing for athletes. And Dr. Plisky is an expert in the realm of movement assessment as he actually helped develop the Y balance test, as you'll hear during the episode today. Dr. Plisky is also an associate professor at the University of Evansville's Doctor of Physical Therapy program. He's the co-founder of the Professional Rebellion, and his personal mission is to advance rehab and performance by inspiring those with the power to change it. In addition to being a faculty member, he also conducts a lot of research. He's a co-developer in functional movement system, and he consults in collegiate and professional sports. He's an incredible individual, and I'm so thankful to have him on the podcast today. I know you're going to love this episode, so enjoy. Phil, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to have you on today. Oh, it's great to be here. For people who aren't familiar with you, or maybe they haven't heard about all the amazing things that you're doing, uh, would you mind kind of filling them in a little bit about who you are and what you do with professional rebellion and with uh, education and the physical therapy world in general? Oh, absolutely. Well, I, I don't know if it's amazing or not. I guess the, the end user would have to judge that. But, uh, you know, I appreciate uh, being here and uh, appreciate the chance for an introduction. But yeah, my, I mean, basically, my mission is to, you know, take people to levels that they don't think they can get to themselves. And uh, I get to do that in several different ways. I get to do that as a as a uh, faculty member in a, a DPT program. I get to do that uh, as a researcher as uh, a private practice owner uh, working in performance and athlete with athletes. Uh, <clears throat> I get to do that as a consultant in all major professional sports and uh, also through the professional rebellion, which uh, its goal is to to allow healthcare providers to have their ideal or dream career and actually love what they do uh, because I get to do a lot of that uh, every day. So I want everyone else to have that. I love that. I love that. And as you were talking, I realized it seems like you have a lot of knowledge and experience in the treatment and management of athletes, especially on the rehabilitation side. Is that correct? It is. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, yeah, I've been doing it. It's kind of crazy. This is going on my 25th year here uh, of working with uh, athletes and probably in the past three to five years, really on the on the strength and conditioning side of things and the performance side of things, uh, even to a higher level than I've ever uh, uh, dove into before. So yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun. That's incredible. And you've even, I believe, pioneered some of the tests that are now fairly common practice, like the Y balance test as well. Yeah, we had a great team that helped develop <laughs> that, and uh, you know that's uh, it's uh, hopefully being utilized to to help help uh, you know athletes and non athletes alike better their better their lives. So yeah, definitely. Now, as we were talking before we even hit record here, there's a lot of athletes across the country, and there's a lot of physical therapists across the country, um, but athletes have slightly different or unique demands than the general population might. So if you're a physical therapist or a strength coach, chiropractor, whoever, you get an athlete in your clinic, you'd probably want to do your evaluation slightly different to hit some of those sports specific things or running form or whatever. Um, So based on your experience and your knowledge and everything that you've done, have you found that there's certain screening tools or tests or where, where do you start day one when an athlete first comes in to see you? Yeah, that's interesting that you say that, you know, and I think it, 
I think really in the early parts, um, most people are actually pretty well the same. They all get the same assessment. We use a selective functional movement assessment combined with an evidence-based uh, regional approach uh, as well. Uh, and that, that's where it starts. It begins with, with movement, finding out the root cause of the problem. We do a lot uh, of more of rather than focusing on someone's knee pain or back pain, that, that's actually not too hard to get rid of the, the getting rid of the underlying cause and identifying that. That's where I think the, the really interesting part of rehabilitation becomes. But then from there, you know, pretty well, everyone, no matter their age level, all, almost always gets some sort of balance test, whether that's simply standing on one leg or a full Y balance test. And then every function level from that, uh, depending on what they're returning to, if they're going to be active in fitness, then they're getting a functional movement screen. Uh, if they're so, you know, everybody's, you know, pretty well getting uh, uh, FMS and Y balance test. And then we just keep going up progressive levels of difficulty all the way through, you know, we start thinking about, okay, well, what about their upper quarter dynamic stability with upper quarter Y balance test? What about, uh, you know, hop testing, different dynamic agility drills, uh, upper extremity power testing, and we keep going up the levels depending on what level the person is returning to. Right, right. I love that approach. And it's very systematic. It's mm -hmm. not like you're trying to develop a system every time you see someone. It's, you know, here's my system. I need to implement it. And I need to trust that this is going to give me yeah. the information I need to make an accurate diagnosis instead of like trying to sift through the weeds every time you see a new athlete. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's an important thing. I think, um, you know, one of the things that I've really gotten out of the uh, strength and conditioning realm and, and and diving in with, you know, fortunately, I get to I get to be with some of the best strength coaches in the country. So <clears throat> I get to learn, you know, I feel like my my level of knowledge is this. Uh, so I'm just constantly absorbing and 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 uh, learning from them. But one of the biggest things I've learned is the difference between a physical therapist's view or an athletic trainer's view or a chiropractor's view and maybe a strength and conditioning specialist view is we in rehabilitation start at the beginning and go, okay, what are the tissue healing guidelines do I need to follow? What are the contraindications here? And, and, and all of those things, and then project out our rehabilitation forward based on those tissue healing guidelines. <clears throat> Where strength coaches really look at it uh, from the end and work backwards, meaning if I need to, if the first game is March uh, 31st, and it's now November 7th, what do I need to do? What do I need to be able to do on March 15th so that I'm ready for March 31st? And then what, so if I need to be able to do that on March 15th, what do I need to be able to do on March 1st? And they project backwards so they know exactly what they're doing every day leading up to the end. And I, that that approach has really transformed what I do from, from a systematic perspective as well, because now I can respect the biological tissue healing, but I also have that very strong end in mind. Yeah, and I think that's essential because unfortunately, we can't keep people in physical therapy forever. They have a life outside of physical therapy. So if you're not working towards something or some goal, then ultimately, what are you doing? Right. Well, and then, and, you know, really, I, I think... I don't know the exact statistics on it, but I, I think it's about 90% uh, of patients don't actually complete their full plan of care. They drop off for whatever reason or other. And I think part of it is 
we haven't defined the end. We, you know, it's not, you know, we, this is how long it's going to take. And this is what you will be able to do. And that's how we know we're done versus, you know, I'm just out of pain. And is, is that just enough? Right, right. And, you know, just because you get out of pain, that doesn't necessarily mean it's not going to come back again. As you mentioned, when we were talking about the movement assessment, there is you really need to get to some kind of working hypothesis or theory of, well, this is why they have this symptom, or this is why they feel this or whatever. And you mentioned that you like the FMS, uh, SFMA a lot. And I'm a big fan of them as well, mostly because of their simplicity, right? It's not mm -hmm. like they're going to, you know, have people try and eyes closed, stand on one leg on blue foam while juggling four balls. Right. It's like, can you squat? Can yeah. you stand and twist side to side? And it's incredible how many people uh, can do, take those basic things and pick up so many little details across the whole body from, you know, just simple gross movements like that. Yeah, it is. I, I will say, you know, we talk about it as managing the minimums. Like, what do you minimally need in order to be able to function? What do you minimally need to be able to be at high performance in your sport? And so we think about managing the minimums throughout. And I will tell you, I've pretty well made a career in professional sports, not by how advanced and high tech what I do is, I just don't miss anything, you know, because we, and, and, you know, we go in and, and consult in these, these high level uh, programs and they're doing amazing and great stuff. But sometimes the, the simple things that, you know, are there air in the tires? Uh, you know, we haven't, we haven't looked at that yet. You know, we're, we're fine tuning the race car, you know, by, by one degree in the engine timing. And, and yet we haven't checked everything else. Right, right. And it's not to say that those little things are important because they can make or break the difference. Right. However, to your point, if you don't take care of the basics first, then none of that fancy stuff really matters. I like to say that you need a firm foundation for your house to sit on. And if you don't have that, then everything else is just going to eventually crumble down. Absolutely. And that's and that's the whole point is and I think when you when you talk about it from a systematic perspective, you know, I'm, I'm, I always say I'm wrong a lot. I just don't stay there. And so I'm testing things and I'm immediately testing myself whether I was effective or not. Um, and so I can get farther down the road in one session that might take, you know, if you're just trying to, you know, shoot, shoot arrows at whatever you think might be it. Uh, I get more in one session than some do maybe in three or four weeks, not because I'm smarter or more effective. I just, I just go, don't skip steps. So. Yeah, don't miss anything. It's, yeah, it's hard to beat someone who shoots and doesn't miss. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, it, or I always like to think of it as I, I probably miss a lot of shots, but I'm always there to, with for the putback. Um, <laughs> so you know, like if I if I shoot and rebound, you can't, you know, and I do both really well. Uh, you, you, it is. You're right. It is hard to beat. I love that analogy. Now, you mentioned the concept of regional interdependence, which for people who didn't know, essentially refers to how issues or limitations at one area of the body can impact another region. So commonly, we look at, say, like the foot and ankle and the role that they play in the knee. Um, but naturally, athletes tend to be um, participate. A lot of sports, I'll say, are very rotational in nature. Mm -hmm. And in order for rotation to occur, there has to be some ability to dissociate upper body from lower body or hip rotation from, say, spine rotation. 
And that's a tricky area for people to track or measure. Do you have anything that you like to look at as far as upper body, lower body dissociation, especially in those rotational kind of patterns? Well, the way I think about it is, is I've, I, I take a simple approach to, as you may have kind of figured out is, is, you know, rotational sports, the whole goal of just about every rotational support is to take energy from the ground, take it through your entire lower extremity, develop tension throughout your lo entire lower extremity, have it transmitted by the core and then come out that tension, come through the upper extremity and out your fingertips. Again, whether you have a racket in your hand, a golf club, you know, a hockey stick, whatever it is, uh, th that's really the the whole goal there. And so, I, I you know, when you say, is there something I look at for that? You know, how, how, how am I doing that? I think the first part of it says, do I have the movement ability to do that? Meaning, what's a prerequisite for generating large amounts of force into the ground and having it traverse that whole system? Well, I probably need to be able to balance at a decent level. So can I do a single leg stance, you know, and you know, what, what about that rotation? Well, how does that fascial system work together such that I can wind up a lot of energy and then release all that energy? Well, I have to have rotation. So maybe I should look at movement and, and can I do a full rotation pattern? And, you know, the list just keeps going on and on. So it starts with movement and then, you know, basic movement, which would be like top tier SFMA. And then it progresses to, okay, well, how do I combine those movement patterns? Uh, one of my first connections to the, the core is my rotary stability pattern. So can I, can I move my arm and leg and maintain some stability and not rotate, right? An anti-rotation pattern. And then a trunk stability push-up pattern. Can I, you know, transmit the force uh, between my legs and my arms through the core in a coordinated way, a left-right, you know, as I look at that. So that kind of transfers there. And then, of course, we get into more three-dimensional things in the Y-balance test and uh, both upper and lower quarter. But ultimately... We still have to transfer that to higher level function. You know, am I able to take a load to my core? Uh, can I do I have postural integrity under load? Do I then have the ability to generate power? And then finally, do I have the ability to store that energy and do it in a plyometric way? And that then gets me to that foundation, then allows me to look at, okay, now do I have the sport specific skills? I like that. I like that. Hitting the reset button and starting from the very bare minimum, I'll say. Mm -hmm. And um, I like how you start with just basic balance because a lot of athletes are surprised when, you know, you put them in, say, a wide balance type of uh, test there. I actually uh, shout out to Dr. Lair. I worked with uh, Dr. Lair for my capstone in school. Oh, honey, One of the yeah. things we used was your wide balance test there. Um, and it amazes a lot of athletes how it looks so simple and yet it's so complicated. It really is. And, you know, it's funny, you go into pro sports and in, in pro baseball in particular, if there's one test they hate the most, it's the Y balance test because it really exposes them. They're so used to working in their comfort zone that when they are pushing themselves to those limits 
And it, then it really exposes, wow, this is different left to right. This is just really hard. They'll sometimes even just start pouring sweat. Uh, not even, I don't know that it's from the total challenge of it, but I think the 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 systemic response of uh, of like, wow, I've, I've, I'm pushing the limits here that my body doesn't know what it needs to do. And it's really just a test of how far you can reach forward and then uh, posterior lateral and posterior medial. Yep, just um, diagonally backwards, absolutely. Now you are much well- more versed, I'll say, in the research surrounding the Y-Balance test than I am because, well, you developed it, sure. helped develop it. So for people who have seen it before but aren't sure on the application of it or the mm. utility of it, or even can you take a Y-Balance test and, say, predict injury uh, in an athlete, can you kind of talk us through and explain some of the metrics behind that test? Sure, absolutely. So one of the things, I mean, we always want to, any test that we're working with, we want to make sure that it's reliable first, right? And so it, the, the reliability on it is is really actually probably never been under question. Uh, the validity of it is actually pretty good in that um, it is measuring uh, your ability to, uh, at the limit of your stability. Uh, so it's, it certainly has good face validity there. And there's been several studies comparing it to other types of tests, but there aren't a lot of tests that really take people to their extremes of motion in, in balance. Uh, it requires range of motion, strength, and tons of EMG studies that show, you know, all that type of thing. And, and then, so then we get to, well, what are we trying to do with it? You know, like, how do we, how do we, it, we know that the test makes some sense and can be repeatable, but what are we trying to do with it? Well, ultimately what we're trying to do is identify, is, are there any roadblocks or barriers to that athletes or even person's performance and durability? Okay. So, you know, what, well, what would a performance uh, barrier be? Well, if I can't stand well on one leg at the limit of my stability, you know, that is obviously going to, you know, it's just, pretty obvious it's going to impact your ability to generate force in the ground through running, throwing, you know, that type of thing. Now, so that's a kind of a performance access, but it's not a direct measure of performance. It's more one of those foundational type of things. You know, someone can perform really, really well at a high level with a poor Y balance test because they've compensated through it. And, you know, that's what makes them a great athlete. But then I look at, okay, what about the durability? You know, so what about the ability to sustain my high performance in the long term? And the the research on that, I would say uh, to to is is probably mixed is how I would say it. It probably half the studies show that uh, there is a direct correlation of the Y balance test alone to injury, and about half show that there's not. Well, so of course, I think the ones that, show that it is are, are the well-done ones and the other ones aren't right. I mean, we wouldn't think that, but <laughs> no, bias at all, right? no bias at all in that. Right. But so, you know, let's look at, well, maybe what are the application errors that we're seeing in some of the research? Well, a few things. We know that different sports, different occupations cause better development in balance than others. And what do I mean by that? Well, for example, uh, hockey players, you know, and soccer players spend a lot more time on one limb than uh, basketball players. Uh, so they actually develop better balance than basketball players. The other thing is wrestlers actually develop really good balance. You don't think of that as a as a balance specific activity, but it really is. They're really posting on the ground with their legs, 
having their core challenged because remember the, the Y balance test requires range of motion, strength, core stability, timing, coordination, all that has to be there, which wrestlers do really well at. So you can see different sports would have different performance measures. Well, also think about the balance of a 12 year old versus an 18 year old, uh, the balance of an 18 year old versus a 22 year old, a balance of a professional football player compared to the peewee, right? And so we have different metrics. So what happens though, in a lot of studies, in order to get enough of a sample size, they'll look at all of the college athletes or all of the high school athletes. And what happens is you have some sports that are low performing in, in their number and uh, some in their composite score, their overall score, and some are that are really high. And so the tendency toward the mean washes out any difference that we would actually see in injury prediction. That, that's one problem. Uh, one, what's consistent in the literature is an anterior reach uh, asymmetry. Posterior lateral, posterior medial asymmetry come up as well, but consistently anterior, that forward reach uh, of uh, four centimeters or greater, if that difference is four centimeters or greater, it shows a lot of predictive ability. Well, what has happened there? Well, we've removed any performance metric because now we're just comparing right and left. So it's like, ah, oh, no wonder almost all the studies say that, but only half say, uh, you know, the composite score is predictive. Now I say all that to say there's a probably a third problem. I mean, the first problem is uh, that we're not comparing apples to apples when we're we're developing, uh, looking at performance. And, you know, maybe we have too heterogeneous of a group when we're, we're looking at people. The other thing is, I don't think that any one thing is ever designed to be everything. And so, you know, what we've seen in multiple military studies, as well as collegiate athlete studies, and, and one of them is, is by Dr. Lear uh, uh, and, and, and colleagues there, that when you combine multiple risk factors like previous injury, performance on the functional movement screen, whether someone has zeros or ones, their Y-balance test composite score for their age, gender, and sport, asymmetry left to right. And when you combine those things, and, and in our military studies, even things like runtime and dorsiflexion asymmetry and, and those types of things, when you combine those all together, well, guess what? You get a pretty comprehensive picture of that person's risk. And that's really how everything's designed. Uh, you know, I can't imagine, I always, I've got four boys and I always look at it like, you know, when selecting a test, you know, or a battery of tests, what would I want done for my, my sons? You know, I certainly wouldn't want just the Y balance test done. You know, we, I've got baseball players at home, basketball players at home. And, you know, guess what? When we just did combine for my 12-year-old's team where we're testing everything, guess what we tested? Sure, functional movement screen and Y-balance test. But we also tested shoulder range of motion, thoracic spine range of motion, top tier SFMA looking for pain, grip strength, broad jump, right? So it's more of, hey, where is your weak link? Because I'm, I'm really not interested in predicting injury in my kids or any athletes. I'm interested in preventing injury. And that prevention comes by identifying the weak link, intervening, retesting. So long answer to your question, but I think it was a pretty big question. I love that answer, actually, there, Phil. Um, and I like how at the end you brought up the whole purpose is not to predict, but prevent injury. And I've heard people kind of argue back and forth, like, can you even 
prevent injury, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, someone that I was talking with recently was like, well, you know, Saquon Barkley tore his quads or his uh, his ACL. And have you seen his quads? Like, he's super strong. He's massive. Um, so it's one of those things that we might not ever really be able to 100% certainty look at someone and be like, look, you know, we're going to be able to prevent every injury that ever happens to you. Right. Um, Well, you just, I mean, just even common sense allows you to say that, that, you know, there's so many circumstantial and environmental factors that are always going to be at play um, that are, may not be modifiable, but I mean, even as going to, to as simple as it's probably a constellation of, of things. Hey, how did you sleep the past 72 hours? How did you eat the past 72 hours? How well hydrated are you? Are you jet lagged? Um, you know, all of those, did you just have a fight with your spouse? You know, I mean, all of those things go into, I mean, I, I think of, uh, you know, uh, one of my sons broke his uh, uh, hand of metacarpal this year playing baseball. And uh, it was kind of what you would consider a freak injury, but we had just gotten back from a trip that we were six hours time zone jet lag, got back the night before, and he played in the baseball game that day. And I can't help but think his coordination and timing had to be off. He was low sleep, different time zone. And yeah, I mean, he just caught his hand on the bag wrong, but would he have not, would have he done that had, had, uh, you know, he'd been fully rested, fully hydrated and everything was totally fine. We can never know, but certainly it goes into it. You mean to tell me that there's more to a patient than just what I see? Really? <laughs> right. Exactly. I mean, yeah, we're, we're, we're looking through one lens and that's the thing we have to be careful of is it is and recognize that it is one lens and, and uh, go beyond that. And I feel like that's something that is not talked about enough is, you know, what you see on, say, day one might be very different than what you see day two. And it's not because of anything that you did, per se. Maybe that person slept better. They actually drank some water, ate some food and took care of themselves a little bit better. And as a result, there's a huge difference. Now, maybe you did something and it made a great difference, which I love when that's the case. Um, but sometimes you have to consider all the 99% of other factors that impact someone's life outside of the 1% of the thing that you just did with them. Absolutely. Without a doubt. Um, Phil, as we start to wrap up here, uh, I feel like we've done a great job just kind of exploring a lot of pre-activity and initial different movement screenings. We talked about the utility of the white balance. We talked about the importance of keeping things simple, which I feel like is not discussed enough as it should be. Do you have any kind of closing thoughts, closing remarks, or anything else that you want people listening to really take away from our discussion on movement screening and its application? You know, I think uh, probably two things. One would be, I don't think we're in, in a loss for information. I mean, you don't have to spend but 10 minutes on social media and or even hearing this this podcast and not have a ton of information out there. So I, I don't know that we're at a loss for information. I think we almost have too much and we need to be systematic and know what to do with it. So I think being systematic is important. Uh, secondly, uh, checking your own work is really important, meaning, it, you know, it's easy for the patient to tell you they feel better and tell you their symptoms are resolved, but how are they actually better? And that's that's when it's a very good test battery uh, is, is important. And to that test battery is, 
you know, one thing is probably nothing, whether it's the functional movement screen, Y balance test or hop testing, you know, any one of those. I mean, and again, I, I could list off, you know, uh, you know, I have all, all, all return to sport test batteries on at my website of like, hey, this is a checklist. I don't even that's it's just a checklist to make sure that I'm doing the right thing. There's a lot of stuff on there. And to point to just one of them and say, oh, well, you know, uh, looking at the oswestry is the end all be all of treating low back pain. It's like, well, that no, that tells you about their symptoms and their function. Not that that's not important. It's just not everything. Right, right. Because unfortunately, symptoms don't always correlate to functional level. Correct. You're, Absolutely. Your 10 out of 10 pain is likely different than mine. And uh, that's probably different than, you know, the patients we both just saw recently. Um, so there's so many subjective things. And um, I love we've kept going back to this point of having a system. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's something that when I first graduated school, um, it, it took me a while to actually grasp the importance of that, because I feel like when you graduate from school with your doctorate in PT, or if you're an AT or strength coach or whoever, you just want to go out there, guns ablaze, and then make your mark. Um, but unfortunately, if you don't have a system that you can repeat over and over and over again, you're not actually going to get better. You don't get better at, say, you know, a squat in the gym without squatting regularly. You kind of right. have to do it over and over. So you need to develop your system of evaluation and assessment and how you're going to look at things. And you need to do it over and over and over again. And if you don't, you're not going to get any better at it. And I've also learned to realize fairly quick, I think, that it's okay to not be original in everything that you do. Like it's okay right. to say, hey, I'm going to get FMS level one, level two, and I'm going to use FMS. That's It's a great system. And it's better to have that system that was developed by many amazing individuals than to try and piecemeal something together and create your own little hodgepodge that ends up kind of- Oh, absolutely. Well, what's the likelihood of me coming up with something good that's comprehensive that's that compared to something that's been, you know, researched, like you said, developed by multiple people over several decades, you know, like, I mean, I, I think I'm a pretty intelligent guy, but there's no way I could do this on my own. So, you know what? I rely on all the folks doing uh, hop testing. As a matter of fact, I'm in the process of updating my uh, return to sport and discharge checklist to include some more hop testing because more research has come out on some really good hop tests that identify deficits that maybe their standard hop tests don't. And hey, well, I don't need to do the research on that, but I need to respect the people who have and 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 look at it in way more depth than I have time to. So. 100%. Phil, for people who want to check out the resources that you mentioned on your website and find out more about you, where where can they find you at? Sure. Uh, easiest way is philplisky.com, P-H-I-L-P-L-I-S-K-Y. Uh, that's easiest way. There's resources there. Uh, post a weekly blog. You can have, there's a newsletter there. I'm really trying to provide as much free information to make the professions, all the professions better, to make athletes better, to make, uh, you know, average folks better. Um, and and so that's a great way. Also, uh, social media, Phil Plisky is pretty well my handle, I think, except on uh, Facebook, it might be Dr. Phil Plisky, um, just, <laughs> so, just to differentiate between my personal and professional. But other than that, uh, everything's that, I guess that's with a weird name that you don't, that's P-L-I-S-K-Y with that 
uh, weird name. You don't really have to worry about uh, trying to come up with an original uh, uh, handle because it's already built into my name. Definitely. I love it. We'll link to all of that below as well. So if you didn't quite catch that, you can just click there and check out everything that Phil is up to. Phil, really appreciate your time. Thank you again. Thanks so much. It was great to be here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend, subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time.